If you've recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today. A different future starts with you. That's why GoDaddy does more than help you find a name. You can create, sell, and get found online so any small business can make a change. We need a new generation of thinking. Your way of thinking. Start different at GoDaddy.com. This is an ode to Napa cabbage. Of all the cabbages on all the cabbage farms, only you have the crisp crunch worthy of our Bibigo Korean dumplings. No other cabbage would do, because no other cabbage tastes like you. We love you, Napa cabbage. Just don't tell Green Onion. Napa cabbage, one of many obsessively crafted ingredients in every hearty, flavorful Korean dumpling from Bibigo. Go handcrafted. Go Bibigo. Authentic Korean dumplings now in the freezer aisle. Hi, it's Mark Reed Edwards. Welcome back to Confessions of a Marketer. This time we have Vanessa White back for a discussion about life during COVID-19, running a small business, and what the post-COVID world might look like. Vanessa is co-owner of Jaju Pierogi, now sold in stores all over New England. I think there's no better way to view the business world than through the eyes of a small business or startup owner. Vanessa, welcome. It's great to have you here. Thank you for having me back. So for those listeners who haven't heard our earlier discussion, can you share your background and the origin story of Jaju? Absolutely. So my sister and I founded Jaju Pierogi about five years ago now. We have a Polish deli in the family. Our grandfather started this deli in the 60s with his siblings, and we always grew up around it. I used to work there in middle school, helping my elders pinch pierogi and make kielbasa and wumki and all these Polish deliciousness. And we always have pierogies in our freezer and we took it for granted. It was like our macaroni and cheese. And we went to school in Boston and then we had our first roommates and apartments. And our roommates started asking, Hey, where'd you get those? Our mom would still bring them through. She would go to the family (laughs) store and kind of drive through and, and we just would throw them in the pan. Like it was nothing. And people started to ask, we connected the dots that no one was really distributing pierogies in Boston on a store level. There were a few restaurants. So we started part-time with our full-time jobs. We were cooking on Sundays and then freezing everything for the following Saturday. We did that part-time for a year doing farmer's markets and some events. And then at the end of 2016, it just became a little bit too much to handle part-time. So we went full-time in 2017 and it's been a crazy ride since then. We started distributing to stores in 2017, literally driving around and dropping samples. And now we work with eight or 10 distributors and we're distributing from Maine to Maryland. So been been a wild ride for sure. <laughs> and for those of listeners who don't know, you used to work for me. Mm-hmm. 10 years ago, that was it? That was my first job. <laughs> <laughs> my very first job out of school. I was working for you as a marketing project manager. Yeah, back in the 2009, 2010, oh, somewhere God. around there. Yeah, I was right. I was graduated right into the recession. So I was very grateful for that. So job. you took any job you could get. Yeah, you exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I know your background and I know, you know, you worked in marketing and you did a bunch of different things and then you started this business and you started it in a really good economy, right? Mm-hmm. And then suddenly 
six months ago, the bottom fell out for a lot of people. So what have those past six months been like for you? Yeah, so it's interesting. That fateful day, it was March 15th. That was the day in Massachusetts, at least, that everything was going to be closed down or was announced that things were going to be closed down. And by closed down, for people who don't live in Massachusetts, it was basically everything but supermarkets, pharmacies, the essential businesses, pet food stores were still open, hardware stores, and then restaurants were only allowed to do takeout. But even when they announced that, it wasn't very clear. It seemed very doomsday and wasn't clear who was going to be open any given time. And it kind of remained that way for several weeks, this constant question of what's open, who's open, how are they open, all of that. And so that day, I remember sitting in my chair at my desk when it all kind of came down. And it was funny because a couple of days before then, everyone on social media, all the businesses we're still kind of acting like everything was okay and that this is all going to blow over and that we're still open, we're here for you. And then the tone changed dramatically in two days. So on that Sunday, it was declared that Tuesday, everything had to be like the restaurants had to be closed, bars had to be closed. And at that point, we had a storefront. And while a storefront wasn't a huge part of our business plan, it was still cash flow. And also, I think just the general mood of everything being closed. I sat and I cried in my chair because I didn't know what it meant. Yeah. And so I'm sure a lot of people did the exact same thing as I did with sit and cry in their chair. But in that moment, I said to my sister, I called her up and I was like, I'm going to do this weird thing, this like, crazy idea and do meal kits. And what we're going to do is what we always do is just package pierogies. You get two dozen pierogies of your flavor choice, pound of kielbasa, and then just to jazz it up, let's put in Polish mustard, sour cream, and horseradish and make it like pretty low brain power kit, but still have people like participating. My thought process. And I said to her, this is my project. I'll take it on probably like seven people will respond and I'll drive to Wayland and <laughs> Rockton and use my own gas money. Of course, my sister's listening to me and my mom and like, you're crazy. I took the value of our the product and then added $7 for gas. I was like, all right, don't worry about this. I'm going to do it. And I launched it. I announced on social media, we're closing our storefront. Keep in mind, we were selling just stores. But again, it was that like unknown that yeah. so so I, I announced that we're going to launch these meal kits and that was a sunday at 2 p.m and i just it was a google form and i started seeing the responses like 10 at a time kind of pile up and by i think it was tuesday morning we had like 275 meal kit orders and then over the next six weeks i would say we got 2,000 meal kit orders. Yikes. So yeah, it was madness. It was amazing. People were, for the most part, wonderful. We had a running list of... We had a queue of 400 deliveries at any given time. And we were delivering from Portland, Maine, out to Springfield, down to the Cape, down to Providence, everywhere. And we were completely unprepared for this, right? <laughs> so. 
we were first of all using Google Forms. So my sister was like between myself and my sister every week. I was on there after we were working like 120 hour weeks, and I was on there doing like address organization because people would just put in their addresses like willy nilly in Google Forms, right. you know. And right. so I would go through and start to group geographic areas. And my sister at the same time and other people she was like hiring and like paying hourly were going and invoicing people because we just... I threw this at the wall and had no idea if it was going to stick. And then it like really got away from us in terms of that. But other than the fact people kind of expect you to work like Amazon, for the most part, people were very patient and it kind of went viral. People were sending them as gifts. One person received it and then they sent it to eight other people and they... It was Easter and people can do their families. So we had a lot of people sending the kits to like their mothers or their grandmothers that they couldn't be with that maybe had Polish heritage. So it ended up being this crazy experience, like a crazy branding opportunity for us because my sister and I, I mean, we had like other people delivering too, but my sister and I were spending 15 hours a day on Saturday and Sunday. And then like, four nights a week from 5 to 9 p.m. out delivering. And people were seeing us walk up to their doorstep and leave their kit. Probably the first humans they had seen in a long time. (laughs) I joked around about I was going to dress up in like an astronaut costume and like bound across (laughs) the lawn. And that's how I felt. I felt like people were looking outside at me like I was an alien. But yeah, so it was a great... People started leaving us beer in the coolers. They would leave us snacks. They would, it, got, it was just like really endearing and exhausting. And then we got a little bit smarter and we started partnering with breweries. And that also encouraged people to buy the beer. So we started... Instead of delivering 250 kits a weekend or whatnot, we started dropping 250 kits at four locations. Yeah. And then people would buy through the brewery, hopefully buy some beer, and we would just drop the kits off at the brewery and ah. they would give us a check. <laughs> That's pretty nice, yeah. So that worked out better. So we started getting smarter about it. And then as things started to open up again, we the kits were extremely exhausting and were great for the moment. But then we started doing like more farmers markets and whatnot and doing pickups. Yeah. So people could pre-order frozen dozens and then pick up at a spot that we were showing up at. And at the same time, just to kind of conclude the whole COVID story, our business, seeing as we sold frozen food to grocery store, COVID was actually, and I would never have imagined this on March 15th, but was a huge bump to our business because we sold to grocery stores. Yeah. We did all of our wholesale volume of 2019 just in March. And I think up until this point, we've probably done seven to eight times of what we did last year in wholesale volume. That is great. Which is, it's a crazy conversation to have because like you said, so much, so many businesses, it really split. Some businesses did like things you wouldn't expect, bike shops. Right. Like got slaughtered because they couldn't, people couldn't go to the gym. So I called a bike shop to get my bike tuned up and they gave me an estimate of 10 weeks to get my bike tuned. (laughs) So there were some businesses that did see a bump, but I would never have said when 2020 turned the clock to 2020 that because I sold frozen dumplings to a grocery store, that would have been good for our business. Yeah. 
think about this. You mentioned the word branding earlier. Mm-hmm. You built a brand. For those people who are not in Boston area, look up Jaju Pierogi and you'll see an absolutely tremendous brand in the Boston area now expanding out into New England and south down to Maryland. But some people might have looked at it as a life or death moment. You looked at it as a kind of branding opportunity for you to continue doing what you had built over those previous two and a half, three years, whatever it was. And I guess I'm interested in what the lessons are from what you did over those previous years to sustain a business into the future. Is it flexibility? Is it like, okay, we were doing this at a storefront on one day and let's make meal kits the next day? Or is there something larger in your vision that you're trying to realize? So I think it's a really good question that my sister and I both kind of realized during COVID that everything that we had done over the past four years really led us to thrive in this moment. So more background about how we built our business is that since 2016, we've been traveling around New England to different breweries doing pop-ups. So we go to a brewery, we fry our pierogies there for customers to eat, and then they can enjoy them with beer. And we've, while a lot of food trucks stay in Boston, we're not a food truck, but like food vendors stay around Boston, we've never set limits. And we've always had the goal or the idea that we will go everywhere because we want to sell everywhere. We want to distribute everywhere. And we need people to go to the store and recognize our packaging and recognize our brand. So we'll travel up into Maine, down to Southern Connecticut, even into New York, out to the Berkshires. It'll go further and further as we expand. But that's what we've been doing for the past four years. So we benefited that people... So... We had the hustle mentality of every weekend, Friday, Thursday, sometimes Thursday, Friday, Saturday, sometimes Sunday, we're out doing the brewery scene. People know us. They feel attached to us. They see me and my sister. We're there. We're present. There's like an emotional attachment to us. And so all of that like constant hustle and presence allowed us to really, I mean, people really came out for us during COVID. And so that wasn't a conscious thing that benefited us during this time, but we saw also diversifying our business. Have you hinted at that? We were selling in stores. We did events. We also had a storefront. And so we didn't just have a storefront. We didn't have all of our eggs in any single basket. So that helped us out a lot as well. Yeah, we weren't reliant on any singular form of income. But I think the last thing that I would say is that (laughs) I really do believe that COVID played upon everyone's personalities, personality types, and something that like I kind of, it's kind of crazy. My family were just like, it's always business first. And whether that's a positive or a negative (laughs) with our health or anything, My mom's 64 years old. She's flown back and forth to Atlanta like five times during COVID for business meetings. And she's an HR and her business went crazy, as you can imagine, during COVID, working with private schools and all that. And the same thing with us. like We just never once... It was almost like, how are we going to beat this? Yeah. 
with our business. We are not going to give up. How are we going to beat this and survive? And so we kind of just like said, giddy up, let's go. Like we got to kill ourselves and make this work so we can come out the other side. So there was a little bit of that too. Yeah. I know for me back in March, it felt like the world was going to end, but Mm -hmm. for my consulting business, this has been one of the busiest years ever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Again, it's so crazy. Like somehow it really split. I have friends who have bars and restaurants that just because they sold that type of food, it's been a struggle. Yeah. Yeah. And then you worry about restaurants open to 25% capacity. How can you make your nut when you can only have 25% of the customers you typically have? Mm-hmm. Exactly. COVID-19 patients need your help. If you fully recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have the antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients recover. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today to schedule an appointment to donate blood. That's V-I-T-A-L-A-N-T dot Help save lives and schedule your appointment at Vitalant.org. You could help save lives. So I want to talk about selling to a grocery chain and how that works and how you get in and what kind of sales cycle are you talking? When you talk to a grocery chain, how long does it take from the initial contact to getting your product on their shelves? And then how do you ensure they're merchandising it properly and that getting the shelf space you need? You're in a freezer, so that's even probably more valuable real estate. How does that all work? I'm so happy you asked this question. I'm hoping that my answer will be helpful to somebody listening because it's it's a little bit more complicated or it's a lot more complicated than I think I would have ever known in the past being a consumer and not in this space. So I think how I would summarize it is that selling to grocery chains or stores or even independent individual stores, you're always dealing with people. Yeah. <laughs> At the end of the day, it's it's people with different personalities and different work ethics and different interests in local or cheap or whatever, and also different moods. Yeah. You know, if you hit them, it's like you know, there's that old conversation about college applications. And if the admissions counselor woke up on the wrong side of the bed or doesn't like the name <laughs> Jamie or something that you're not getting in, right. it's the same thing because we're working with buyers who are responsible for making these decisions. And sometimes chains are independently owned in the sense that they're like a franchise. And so every store is independently owned and people don't know that. And you have to go to every single store. Sometimes there's one decision maker for the entire chain. The other thing that we've realized, so when we started, we were really focused on small specialty stores where it was easy to just walk in, speak with the person, and they would say yes or no. And then they also accepted self-distribution. Yeah, We don't really do a lot of self-distribution anymore because our volume is too high. We work with about 8 to 10 distributors. But now what we've learned as we really are pushing distribution is that it's a big puzzle of like stores and distributors. And if you're not in with the store's distributor, then they don't necessarily want to order. They're not going to buy it from you direct. If they're a larger store, they're not interested in doing direct. And we're not really that interested in doing a direct either. (laughs) But 
then there's a lot of chicken or the egg. So like we're working with some really big distributors where, to your point, freezer space in their warehouse is really coveted. And so they need to know for sure that your product is going to move. But in order to know your product's going to move, you need to either have like this conglomeration of independent stores, which is some unknown number that they just keep saying, well, you just need to have a group, <laughs> a group of stores. Right. <laughs> or you need a chain. And like the chains just that we're talking about if for Northeast listeners are like Market Basket or Target or these big guys where it's like, how, who do I talk to at Target? Do I talk to right. Charles who's stocking the shelves? Definitely not. The computer is reordering these Hot Pockets. Charles doesn't know anything about these Hot Pockets. Like, yeah, yeah. like you it's don't want to Minneapolis, I would assume. Exactly. Right? You have to go to Minneapolis and, or find somebody, find some connection. I mean, I have an old, like, supervisor boss who does director of loyalty at CVS. And she put me in touch with the purchase, the buyer for CVS. And he simply said, I need products, a product that I can um, put in all 7,700 stores. But the thing is, is that 7,700 stores are across the entire country. So then it's like, well, I don't have the distribution centers or partnerships, even if I wanted to supplier 7,700 stores to do that. And so it's kind of like when you're getting into larger scale distribution, it's a huge puzzle. The distributor won't take you until you prove it, but the store won't take you until you're with the distributor. So what it really comes down to, what we've found is there are some real like shining stars, diamonds in the rough, where every once in a while you strike it right. And you have someone who like believes in a local business, believes in the story is wants to take a chance on you and you get those kind of catches every so often. And then it kind of propels you to the next step. So perfect example is I replied to Hannaford last winter and through their local program and got denied by the category analyst who told me pierogies didn't sell well. Mm -hmm. And then in July, I said, what the heck? And I reached back out to the kind of, administrative coordinator saying, is there any way else I can get into Hannaford that's not through this local program? And she gave me another woman's contact who I emailed and she called me like that day and she was all about it. And she's like, I can find space in our New York distribution center if you can get them there and we'll get you in 20 stores in New York. But it was that woman that read the story or saw the potential Whereas the so-and-so guy who types pierogies into his computer in January and saw like the movement that he didn't want to see, not ours, but probably Mrs. T's, he just wasn't interested. Because I tried to follow up and say, hey, have you read about our story? So, and he's like, thanks for the information, period, bye, (laughs) see you later. So I just feel like it really is just such a human process. Yeah. There's no rules, but some of these conversations can last. Like Roche Brothers was another chain in New England. That was a a conversation that was a month and that was it. Big Y has been going on for three years. It's just very much human. And there's a lot with the chains too. People don't realize like they plan out the inches on their shelves. It's like inch by inch, they fit you in and they squeeze you in. So it's not like they can just throw pierogies on the shelf. They have to take something else off or if another product is redesigning their packaging even 
it can impact whether when they can take you in yeah. because they have to wait for that new sizing. So it's, yeah, it's definitely complicated, 100%. But you say something that, that reinforces something I've thought for years is that B2B is bullshit because you don't sell to a business, you sell to a person, no matter who it is. It's a human being on the other end of the call or the email or the text message, whatever it is. Exactly. So again, like some of these places, they, some of these buyers are people that have never had pierogies in their life. Yeah. So, I mean, just like I always joke, if someone tried to sell me hot sauce as a buyer, I would be like in the dark. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like spicy food. <laughs> I would be a terrible buyer for hot sauce, but that exists as well. Yeah, but I would imagine that if you were a buyer, you would understand the market and research it, not do it just based on your taste. But who knows, Mm -mm. right? So one thing that I find really fascinating about what you've done over the last few years is that you work a lot and you don't take very many breaks, although we are talking and you are on some kind of break out in Oregon right Mm -hmm. now. Yeah, mini break, yeah. (laughs) So this has been an unusually stressful year for everyone. So what are the stresses that you're dealing with on a daily basis and how do you control them? Yeah, it's a great question. I think for me, what I found is that you have to see everything in the balance. So I try not to put so much pressure on myself to do everything. I mean, I'm a big runner, right? And if I don't run for a week because I'm getting absolutely demolished by the business yeah. and all the business needs, I don't make myself feel guilty. Or if I go out with a friend one night and don't do those three things for the business, I don't kill myself about it. I just know I have to get them done the next morning or whatever. Yep. So I just try to really strike a full balance of everything and not just not be too hard on myself. I think it also really helps too that despite the stresses, our team is they really and I know it's like so controversial to say that they're like our family or they're our friends, but we have such a tight knit team that when I've been going to the kitchen this whole time, which has also been a surreal feeling, like when they shut everything down <laughs> on that Sunday and I went, woke up and went to work and drove on the highways. I was like, who else is out here? Oh yeah. my gosh. Like, is this air toxic? Can I breathe it? And having some really difficult conversations with our staff, like, do you feel comfortable coming to work? If you don't, I hope that you will tell us. It was just not really understanding what the reality was. But we all, I think kept positive the whole time. And we have a very social atmosphere. We always, everyone kind of knows what's going on in everyone's lives. And we all chat and gossip and laugh and listen to music. And so I never dread going into production in the kitchen because I really do enjoy everyone there. So I think that helps too. Yeah. And I also really think that my sister and I have settled into our roles in the business a lot over the past year. I think that's uh, your roles, your sister's your partner and your roles is something we talked about in the last interview we did together. And they seem to be defined. Maybe they've gotten even more defined. 
Yeah, I think things haven't changed in terms of I'm marketing, she's accounting, but I think working with your sibling, we're very similar in that we have the same work ethic. We have the same goals for the business, which is something not to be taken for granted because I've heard a lot of stories of partners who start businesses and do not realize they have different goals. But we have the same goals for the business. We have the same work principles, but we are very different in how we execute, I think. So my sister is, I'm a perfectionist. She's less so. She's a delegator and she's able to kind of like let other people do things. I have a harder time doing that. I'm the machine whisperer. She's kind of like the more tactical on the ground person. So I think what we've settled into more is maybe we still have the same accounting versus marketing rules, but we've settled more into our personality roles in the business and accepting what each other brings and not expecting someone to be someone that they're not. And also for me, like, I can read her so well now. Like I can tell when she's anxious, like it's a change in the wind. Like, and so I know how to manage that. Yeah. And I'm sure she feels the same way about me. Yeah. So it's kind of like that. I feel like we've really settled into our rules in the business beyond the labels, really our personality rules. So I think that's helped us get through this as well. Yeah. Also, I didn't really touch on this, but our volume in COVID when like we were probably making 10 to 12,000 pierogies a week before COVID. And now we're averaging around 25 to 30,000. How did you do that? I mean, how did you go from, (laughs) from that one day and the next year you're more than doubling? Yeah. So it's crazy because it's crazy how these things happen and just force you to learn on the fly. Like, We had been pursuing co-packing in even, I think it was January, February, we had gone to a co-packer because making 25,000 every week was something that was extremely daunting and seemed impossible to us. But then we had to do it. So you'd co-pack, tell me what co-packing is. You deliver in bulk and they pack No, so co-packing, which is actually a good point. It's a confusing term. So a co-packer is someone that makes your product for you. Ah, got it. Um, Like a contract manufacturer in a way. Yeah, exactly. So it works really well for people who do like sauces or condiments or jams or even like baked goods, snack bars, things that people are used to. I mean, they're not handmade in a way, right? So yeah, I mean, it's the blessing and the curse of pierogi. So we do have a machine. We've had a machine for a couple of years now. So that's been a god save because we were maxing out at about. 8,000 pierogies a week by hand, but sometimes something went wrong or someone wasn't on their game. Like we didn't hit our numbers and we had to start cutting from events and everything. We've also been able to drop our price pretty dramatically Mm. as we've scaled up. So we do have a machine, but um, yeah, so we was this co-packer and the blessing and the curse with the pierogies is that people it's a very nostalgic food. So people want them to taste like their mothers, their grandmothers, and they will pay for that. But they also are critical if it's (laughs) not just like their moms. And so that's the struggle with the co-packer is, are they going to understand what Bopshi's pierogies should taste like? And they don't care. It's not their business. They're following your recipe. So we went to a co-packer and 
we decided not to pursue it at the time because our first round was fine, but we knew that we were going to have to spend like weeks on site training these people to do it like we did. That was going to come at an expensive price tag because you're paying just in your time. Yeah. 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 Our time, their time you're paying, they're charging you for using their staff as well. So we just kind of backed off on that. And then we, when COVID hit and the meal kits hit in the distribution hit and all this, we had to scale up and we had to figure out how to make that many, because we had to Yeah, just, there was no. And so luckily we had an amazing team and everyone was super efficient and could think on their feet and independent workers for the most part. And we learned where our weak points were very quickly. And yeah. And so we were able to scale up to like 30,000 a week. And even it's crazy because my sister and I would always say like, we really need time to do sales. We need time on the road to do sales. And then moving into the summer, we were able to knock out 20,000, 20 to 25,000 progies in four days. Wow. Instead of five, which gave us a day off to either catch up on computer work or do sales work. As we launched new distributors, we needed to go out and sell. So it was like the push that we needed to really understand our own capabilities. And now we're looking at building out another space as well. So moving out of the space that we're in now and moving to, I think we're in 3,500 square feet. Now we're looking at something closer to 10,000 square feet. Wow. Yeah. That is so great to hear. That is in the cards. I want to spend the next couple of minutes before we close thinking about the future. COVID will end at some point. Don't know when. (laughs) I'm counting on it. I'll knock on wood. There will be a post-COVID world. What do you think that looks like for your business and the kind of ecosystem that you're in of bars and restaurants, grocery stores, and so forth? What do you think the post-COVID world looks like? It's interesting. Since things reopened, our brewery events, we started doing the brewery pop-ups again pretty quickly. Again, it goes back to that kind of personality trait. We were like, let's go. Let's do it. Let's start again. And um, the demand was there. At p- places are busy. We've had some even better events than we had before COVID, which people can have their differing opinions about what that's like in terms of virus containment. But people are out there. Like There is a segment of the population that wants to be out. And so it kind of restored my faith that things will bounce back once they can be fully open again. I do think that this is not really pertaining to my business per se, but there is an element or there is a kind of part of the industry that I'm not sure will recover fully, which is the high-end restaurant. I think people during COVID kind of got used to cooking at home and eating casually and getting takeout. And there's just not need or desire to go spend elaborate amounts of money on white tablecloths. And those restaurants too, they didn't adapt and people didn't get takeout from them because part of the money that they were spending was for the experience and the service. So I think from a food and beverage standpoint, I don't know how long it will take for those 
type level of restaurants. That's an interesting point because you can probably get a decent steak from the average kind of fast casual place. And why would you need to go to Capitol Grill, right? Yeah. I mean, there's like the people had to do takeout really unless they had a huge backing. And I just don't think people were getting takeout from Capitol Grill. Yeah. yeah. And also people were nervous for a while about their own finances. So they weren't spending that money. And if they were going to be supporting local, then they were kind of divvying up their funds amongst a bunch of different right. kind of recipients. So I think for us post-COVID, for our personally, our business, I see the momentum carrying forward from a distribution standpoint. The kind of cash flow that we saw from distribution liberated us from having to be so independent upon these events because before we used to have the storefront plus the events. The storefront closed May 31st because our lease was over. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, it's like the best thing that could have happened because in that market space, the public market space, it's not easy to get the traffic that we used to right. because it's so limited with COVID spacing. So it was a great blessing to finish and kind of close that out May 31st, even though every weekend I still get phone calls to see if we're open. I don't know how to drive that through. But um, so I think that COVID was, we wanted 2020 to be a focus on distribution and making that transition. Because I was always our long-term goal was to be like the Annie's, the Kraft macaroni and cheese of pierogies. We wanted to be next to Mrs. T's on the shelf and be the gourmet version of pierogies. And we had been working for four years, like hustling, scraping by, doing these events, building the brand and doing more wholesale, but like not, it wasn't, still wasn't enough for the business. So we kind of said to each other, like, this is the year we have to make this work. We have to make this transition. Otherwise, what are we doing? And so for us having that big push where we couldn't really be outside the kitchen, that's all we could do was do production and do this distribution and focus on that and then take the momentum from the increased sales and the increased efficiencies in the kitchen and then approach and feel confident approaching different distributors. Like if you asked us last year, if I would have felt confident going and knocking on CVS's door or Target's door or whoever, I would have said, no way. But now I feel like we can do anything. So having that confidence the momentum, the cash flow for us post COVID, I think it's just going to drive further distribution. Personally, I would like to see us down the Eastern seaboard by the end of next year, I would say. That would be my goal. Of course, that's a whole network of distributors and distribution centers and everything like that, but that would be my goal. I know that you will make something like that happen. (laughs) Set our minds to it, for sure. (laughs) We'll make it happen. So can't stop the white girls, that's for sure. Thanks so much for joining me, Vanessa. This is great catching up. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me back. All right. That does it for this week. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Reed Edwards, executive producer, writer, and host of Confessions of a Marketer. Shep Salau is my producer, helping put together the shows every week. Annalyn Timball is my assistant, and she helps with guest relations and getting everything scheduled just right. Thanks, Sheb and Annalyn. Confessions of a Marketer is a trademark of Podco Media Networks, and this episode is copyright 2020. Stay healthy, and see you next time.